We've been studying the Gospel of Luke, and when we came to the Sermon on the Plain, we slowed down quite a bit. The Sermon on the Plain is parallel to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. What Luke has done, he's condensed it, he's compressed it, he's, uh, he, he's hitting the high points that needed to be communicated to those to whom he was writing. And yet we have essentially the same, the same sermon, but the purpose of the sermon in Luke's setting is to show us how a disciple lives. Immediately preceding the sermon on the plain in Luke's gospel, Jesus chooses the twelve. And we talked several weeks ago about the fact that Jesus' method of discipleship was to preach to the crowds. He would preach to them. He would heal the sick. He would cast out demons from those who were demonized. Then out of the crowds, he chose 12 that would be in an especially close discipleship relationship with him. Immediately following the choosing of the 12, we have the Sermon on the Plain. So Luke wants us to understand this is the way disciples live. And if you're a Christian, you're a disciple. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a disciple. Discipleship isn't something we add on to the Christian life. We become a disciple the instant we become a Christian. And so what Luke is wanting us to understand is that Christians live in a particular way, and it's countercultural. It's counterintuitive. It goes against everything in the fabric of our being before we became Christians. And he highlights this in a, in a couple of different ways. One way is he says, love your enemy. Now, you and I don't have enemies necessarily like combatants in a, in a war, uh, but we do have people that get under our skin. They rub us the wrong way. They frustrate us. They, they cause us consternation. And Jesus says that we are to love those people. In fact, Jesus puts those people in our lives intentionally to teach us how to love. And then he talks about do not judge. And when he says do not judge, we know that he means do not be hypercritical, do not be condescending, do not be nitpicky, do not be fault-finding. Quit accentuating the weaknesses in your spouse and your children and your coworkers. Start maximizing and highlighting their strengths and the, the positive qualities about them. He says, do not judge. And then he comes to two concluding parables. And I want to compare and contrast these two parables for just a moment. Uh, the first par parable is agricultural, and the second parable is architectural. One is about a tree, and the other is about a home. The first parable compares our lives to a tree. The second compares our lives to a home, as I just mentioned. The first parable directs our attention to the fruit on a tree. And the second parable directs our attention to the foundation of a house. The first parable teaches us that a person's choices, that is, the fruit, are evidence of the condition of their soul. And I'll say this again in just a moment. Fruit is the outward manifestation of inward life. Whatever is inside of us comes out 
in the choices, the decisions, and the actions that we engage in. The second teaches that a person's foundation is tested by the storms of life, giving evidence of the genuineness of their testimony. And we'll expand on this in just a few minutes as well. That is, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, you will experience storms in life. You'll lose people that you love. You'll experience betrayal. You will experience heartache, sickness, agony. By living in a fallen world, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, no matter what Joel Osteen tells you, you are not to believe that by becoming a Christian, your life is going to be smooth sailing. You're going to experience many of the disappointments that non-Christian people experience because we live in a fallen world. So, I want you to look with me again at the first parable. And I want to talk about fruit trees and the divine inspection as we look at these few verses. Verse 43 says, again, for there is no good tree that bears bad fruit, nor on the other hand, or I'm sorry, there's no good tree that bears bad fruit, nor on the other hand, a bad tree that bears good fruit. He just stains a universal truth. It's clear, it's unambiguous, it's straightforward, it's easy to understand. You don't have to know all kinds of of different languages to be able to get the point. It's straightforward and easy for all of us to grasp. In one sense, it's simple, but not simplistic. It's simple and powerful that Jesus is able to articulate something so theologically sophisticated in such a clear, understandable manner. That is, good trees produce good fruit, bad trees produce bad fruit. If our life is constantly producing bad fruit, then it says something about who we are. If our life is regularly producing good fruit, it says something about who we are. Because he says in verse 44, as he expands on it, for each tree is known by its fruit. So a a tree can say, well, you know, I'm an orange tree, but there are apples on the tree. Well, the apple tree can tell us it's an orange tree all day long, but the proof is in the pudding, the proof is in the fruit. All you have to do is to look at the tree and see the fruit to recognize, and that's not an orange tree. And often as I I talk to people, and I will have the opportunity to talk to many people who, who often will visit our church or maybe at the Starbucks, and I'll talk with them just briefly, and it'll come out, I'm a pastor. I'll ask them where they go to church, and they'll tell me where they go to church. I'll ask them who the pastor is. They don't know who the pastor is. I'll ask them where the church is. Well, you know, I don't know. I haven't been there in a while. And then they begin to feel a little bit uncomfortable, but I begin to see, after a rather brief conversation, their fruit doesn't match their profession. If you don't know who your pastor is, and you don't know where your church is located, you might have a problem with your GPS or you might just be mistaken about who you really are. So it says, people do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. The evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. And now here's the kicker. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. So whatever captures our heart 
is exemplified in the words that we use. Uh, so we, we go back to love your enemy. Well, I, I love the person that frustrates me, the person that gets under my skin, the person that's like a thorn in the flesh. But if you were to be tape recorded, you might discover that you criticize them more than build them up. You, 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 you tear them down, maybe not to their face, but behind their back. That is, what's ever in our heart comes out of our lips in our unguarded moment. Uh, I challenged this last week. Ask your spouse if you're a critical person. Ask your children if you're a critical person. And, and usually, if they're honest and they're not afraid to say it, they'll tell you whether you are or you are not. Because out of the mouth comes that which fills the heart. And so he's talking about fruit as the outward evidence of inward life. Now, we need to understand what this means and what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we never have any bad fruit. That is, he's telling a story, and it's hard to nuance every story. It's hard to nuance every parable to fit everything into it. Uh, because he's generally talking about a big topic, a big point. You, you are what you say in your unguarded moments. The fruit of your life is an indicator of who you are. But all of us, if we're honest about it, we've got areas of our life that are less than we would want them to be. In fact, we have sinful habit patterns in our lives. That would be a piece of bad fruit. Maybe we have a critical disposition toward our spouse. It may be that we, that we uh, don't speak well to and about people. It may be that we struggle with our thought life. And so we, we don't throw everything out the window and say, I must not be a Christian because I have a particular area of my life I'm battling with. That will be a battle our entire life. We're to put sin to death. That's one reason we take the Lord's Supper in order to be strengthened by the Spirit of God in order to put sin to death, to, to cut off that bad piece of fruit. That's why we read the Bible, to be strengthened to do battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. But when a person's demeanor, the, life of, the lifestyle that they live, is antithetical to the Christian lifestyle, and by antithetical I mean not that they live in the most, in the most debased kind of ways, that's clear, that's obvious, uh, but it's by claiming to love Jesus, but not loving the people of Jesus. It's claiming to love Jesus, but never fighting the indwelling sin that we have. In fact, notice what he says in the very next verse as he transitions from fruit to houses. He says in verse 46, now, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why don't you live in obedience to me? You have a proper confession of faith, an orthodox confession of faith, a doctrinally sound confession of faith. We address Jesus as Lord, but our lifestyle isn't commensurate with His Lordship. Now, again, immediately we go to maybe debased living. Well, I'm not like uh, the person that does this or that, and we pick out the most heinous and, and uh, obvious of sins. But we don't live seriously with our faith. Our, we don't take our faith seriously. We don't take the things that Jesus says seriously. 
That is, we can go rather prolonged periods of time without any yearning or desire to, to love the people of God, to serve the people of God, to read the Word of God. Now, the Christian life is we move forward incrementally. It's called sanctification. Sanctification is the process whereby we become more and more conformed into the image of Jesus. That's a slow, laborious process. It is energized by the Spirit of God. We engage in it for the glory of God, and sometimes we take a couple steps forward, but sometimes we take one step back. But by the grace of God, we're pressing on. That's why it's so important to be in fellowship with other believers. That's why for us, if you're going to become an integral part of our congregation, you'll never get there without being involved in a Bible fellowship group, intimately, intricately involved. Because that's where you rub shoulders with people who can say to you in love, brother, you know, you haven't been speaking to your wife very well, and, and I'm concerned about it. Is there something going on? You're speaking the truth in love. You're not being judgmental. You're speaking to a friend, and you're able to help them to see this is a piece of bad fruit in your life. It's not bringing glory to God. It's damaging your relationship with your spouse. It's probably hurting your, your parenting. And so it's not that the whole tree is bad, but it does show that all of us have areas where we need to be encouraged and sometimes we need to be admonished. But here, this is a different kind of disposition. This is a person who says Jesus is Lord, but they don't care that much about Jesus. Yeah, Jesus isn't at the center of their being. Now again, all of us have ebbs and flows in our spiritual life, but when it goes on for months and then it goes on for years that a person isn't passionate for the things that God is passionate about, maybe the tree isn't in such good shape. It could be the tree is sick, or it could be the tree is dead. That is, it's a bad tree. A sick tree can't know that it's a bad tree. It can only think it's a bad tree because the only way you can know that you're a healthy tree is by bearing good fruit. By this you know you have come to know him if you keep his commandments. Assurance of salvation is intimately and intricately and directly tied to living in spirit-filled obedience to Jesus. And so he makes this very bold statement. It sounds judgmental, but it's not judgmental. It's truth spoken in love. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Going back to loving your enemies and not being judgmental. And then he says there are two kinds of people, just like there are two kinds of trees. There are good trees that bear good fruit. There are bad trees that bear bad fruit. There are two kinds of homes. One home has a good solid foundation. The other home has a poor or no foundation. And what we discover is that life, life storms come to both houses. That is, each house represents a person. Each house represents a home. Each house represents a family. It, it represents one's relationship with Jesus. Again, it shows there's only two kinds of people and there are only two destinies. And the evidence of whether one is in good standing with God or not good standing with God is not the storms that they experience, because storms come to all of us. Uh, when, we're, when we're young, we're protected from life storms to some degree by our, by our parents. 
But the older we get, the more direct the storms come and, and the more directly they, they affect us. Whether you love Jesus or you are indifferent to Jesus, some of us are going to get cancer and die. And we shouldn't pretend that those of us who love Jesus and lose someone to cancer skip and sing and, uh, and clap our hands on the way to the funeral home. No, it's devastating. It's heartbreaking. It's beyond probably anything that any of us could ever imagine unless you've lost a spouse. But, but that happens. The storms of life come. And the person that loves Jesus works hard at their job, and they balance out a very busy life being a good husband, a good father, and, and extremely successful in their profession. And, and then one day, unexpectedly, there's a financial downturn, or by office shenanigans, you lose your, you lose your job, and all of a sudden, you discover, you know what, we're not getting in such a good place. But it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that you don't love Jesus. In fact, you do love Jesus. Now, it could be that you've been siphoning money. You could have been that you've been lazy. It could have been that you've been counterproductive. Well, that's, that's what you should have gotten. Uh, but often those things happen whether you're a good person or not a good person, whether you love Jesus, you're a moral person who doesn't love Jesus. So the storms of life come, so no matter what we're told, and there's a little bit of health-wealth gospel in me, I think. I, I try to root it out. I, I, I convince myself, the better I am, the better my life will be. In one sense, that's right, but in another sense, it doesn't mean that I'm going to have 20-20 vision. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to become seriously ill one day. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be a financial crisis that, that might wipe out a significant portion of a, a, of a retirement portfolio. It, it doesn't mean any of those things. Storms come. Now, the person with a solid foundation, they're able to withstand the storms. It might be with a lot of crying, a lot of heartache, a lot of disappointment, a lot of agony, a lot of time on the knees, a lot of times maybe even with the cover pulled up over their head. But they survive the storm and they're praying all the time, God, give me grace to help me live for you in the midst of the storm. Uh, but the other person will try to every and any kinds of escape, means of escape, be it uh, sexual promiscuity, be it alcohol, be it any any way possible to deal with the devastating the devastating circumstances that have befallen them. So the storms of life come. The two houses had looked very much alike. In one home, they loved Jesus. In the other home, they didn't love Jesus. But they, they both had pristine lawns, well-manicured well gardens, well-appointed uh, well well, uh, uh, furnishings. Uh, but one ends up devastated and destroyed eternally, and the other ends up secure and eternally save. See, there's only two kinds of people. You're saved or you're lost. You're justified or condemned. There's only two destinies. You're headed for heaven or for hell. That's what the Bible says. Now, sometimes people will say, well, that's so narrow-minded. That's so fundamentalistic. That's so, that's so arrogant and condescending. But you know, so be it. That's what the Bible says. We don't, we don't want to say it arrogantly. We don't want to say it condescendingly. We don't want to say it in a demeaning or a depreciatory kind of way. That's not very helpful, but the truth of the matter is, 
that's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus is teaching. The tree is good or the tree is bad. The fruit is good or the tree is bad. The house is strong and sturdy and stable or the house is on waiting for destruction when the storm comes. And although they both look the same, there is slight differences between the two. For example, he says in verse 47, everyone who comes to me and hears my word and acts upon them. And Jesus says that's the house that is solid and secure. They'll experience the storms and the devastating uh, winds of life, but what, what they have is a foundation, the evidence of that foundation. The foundation begins with coming to Jesus. Coming to Jesus is trusting in Jesus, believing in Jesus. So we come to Jesus, we believe in Jesus, we listen to His Word, and we act upon it. We obey Him. We love our enemies. We don't speak disparagingly about other people. We're not critical, nitpicky, fault-finding. Uh, we're, we're willing to do the right thing, even if it's at a detriment or a cost to us personally. Uh, Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. Christ Jesus is the foundation. Christ Jesus becomes the bedrock of our life. And as the bedrock of our life, He is our, the most important person in our lives. But I want us to think a little bit more about that first step in that three steps, come, hear, obey. John put it this way in John 6, 37, all those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. He'll never cast us out. Our salvation is eternally secure, not because of who we are or what we do or don't do. Our salvation is secure because of who He is and what He's done. To believe that you can lose your salvation is to put yourself in an unbelievably precarious scenario emotionally. Because you never know if you've done enough to keep it, and you never know if you've done enough to lose it. But Jesus keeps us. That's what he's saying right here. John chapter 1 verse 12 puts it this way, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. To receive him is to believe in him. To believe in him is to receive him. Uh, John chapter 3, verse 18, the one who believes in him is not judged. The one who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You'll notice in the previous passage it says believe in his name. You'll notice that the word believe is used three times in this verse, once positively, twice negatively. And it's believing in the name of the only Son of God, believing in Jesus Christ. John put it this way in chapter 3. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. 1 John chapter 3. To believe in the name of Jesus is to believe in Jesus. His name represents his person, who he is is His name. Yahweh saves. Jesus saves. 
To believe in him is to believe in him with saving faith. 1 John 5.13 puts it this, this way, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Jesus wants us to know him, and he wants us to know that we know him. He wants us to have assurance of salvation. He wants us to know that our salvation is secure. And so he says he's written these things so that you may believe in the name of God's Son. He wants us to believe in Jesus Christ. He wants us to believe in the gospel. Uh, Believing in the gospel is like a three-legged stool. Each leg on the stool is very important. A part of believing in the gospel is knowing the gospel message. You can't believe in something that you don't know. That's why we are committed to missions. That's why we believe in sending out mission teams. That's why we set apart and send out people into the mission field, whether it be with the International Mission Board, Reaching and Teaching, or other mission organizations. We're absolutely, completely committed to missionary sending. And so, People have to know the gospel before they can believe the gospel. They have to know that they are sinners, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They have to know that the wages of sin is death. They need to know there's only one name given among men whereby we must be saved. And so they have to know the gospel message. They have to know the gospel truth. Secondly, they have to affirm the truthfulness of that truth. They have to to believe that truth is true, that it's not nonsense, that it's not mythology, that it's not for some and not for others. Demons, though, have that kind of belief. James says the demons believe that God is one and shudder. So it's not enough just to affirm certain theological truths and realities intellectually. Saving faith is more than just an intellectual affirmation of the reality of certain truths. And that's where many people stop. That's why many people think that they're Christians while they're not. That's why many people can say, I'm a Christian, I just don't go to church. I'm a Christian, I'm just not involved in in, uh, Christian things. You have to embrace it. You have to receive it. You've got to believe it effectually. Uh, You've got to believe it experientially. You've got to believe it so much that you're willing to allow it to be your entire, uh, the very center of your being, Uh, that you're willing for Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to be at the center of your heart, not your profession or your career or the desire for a spouse or your spouse or, uh, or anything else, that Jesus Christ becomes the central person that you're willing to receive Him as Lord and Savior, that you actually genuinely believe that you have no way of making yourself right with God. You can never be good enough, but that Jesus bore your sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds, we are healed. And so each leg of that stool is important. Remove any one and, and, and and they're becomes a problem. But you've got to make the final step. 
You've got to be willing to receive him. You've got to be willing to believe in his name. To believe in his name is to put faith in him as Savior and Lord, as the one who died in your place, bearing your sins in his body on the, on the tree. That changes you from a bad house to a good house, from bad tree to a good tree. That's at the very center of what Jesus is talking about here. No matter what we do, we can't change who we are. But Jesus can cause us to be born again. He can cause us to become a new creation. We can be clothed in the righteousness of Christ and dwelt by the Spirit of God, and we can become a child of God and a part of the family of God. But when that's the case, as it is for almost all of us, but not all of us here today, but for most of us here today, then we need to make sure that we're bearing good fruit and that we're making the kinds of decisions that Christian people should make. Not that we're perfect, but we're fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil by God's grace, for God's glory, to be a brighter light for Christ in a dark world. Now, in just a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper, and that's, that's exactly what I want us to think about in this moment. The Lord's Supper will help us do that. Just like regular reading of the Bible strengthens us to fight the good fight, the world, the flesh, and the devil, to love one another in the faith, just like gathering together congregationally and singing and worshiping together as Craig and the worship leaders lead us, strengthen us to be good soldiers of the cross. Uh, the Lord's Supper does the very same thing. It reminds us of what Jesus did for us. It reminds us of what Jesus continues to do for us. It's a means of grace. It's a, it's a way that God strengthens us. He strengthens us by us reflecting on what He's done for us. When He died for us, it strengthens us by reminding us He's coming again for us that between his crucifixion and resurrection, all our second coming, all of us are living and we're seeking to live for him. We need strength along the way, and the Lord's Supper helps provide that as a, as a means of grace. I want to lead us in a word of prayer. I want us to take just a moment to get our hearts and minds ready, and then I'm going to ask the deacons to come. Go ahead and come forward, deacons. Father in heaven, we thank you today that Jesus, our Savior, is the master teacher. He takes the most sophisticated theological truths and uses words to paint images that are not simplistic, but they are easy to understand, easy for us to grasp. And Father, thank you for giving us the Spirit that helps us to understand and interpret the Bible. And Father, right now we are getting ready to do what you've commanded us to do, and that is to remember you as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And Father, there are various nuances and avenues that we could think about. It's a multifaceted blessing to us. We acknowledge that. But let the memory of what you've done for us and who you are in us inspire us today as we take the Lord's Supper to tap into the resources that you have provided for us to be good fruit-bearing trees and homes with solid foundations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.